All right, well, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to try to get down to verse 10. The title is Reward or Retribution. This is one of those, um, I don't know, that you could say this is the original hellfire and brimstone passage that people talk about when Christians, you know, talk about judgment. Well, it's because it's in the Word of God. Um, but hopefully, the tone in which we ever speak of of uh, the divine retribution of God upon sinners, will one that will always have a brokenness in our voice, that will never be um, kind of rubbing our hands together saying, they deserve it, they have it. Well, listen, we all deserve it. We all deserve the judgment of God, um, but the Lord has shown kindness to us, and he has shown mercy to us, and he has drawn us to himself. <clears throat> so we have nothing of which to boast on our own. This is Paul's second letter to this fellowship. He's writing from Corinth, and there's only a short amount of time that's elapsed between the first and second writing of First uh, and Second Thessalonians. Again, new church, immediately hit with persecution that drove Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of town. Timothy's going back and forth, giving reports. He's carrying letters, and that's how we have these two letters. Again, one of the main themes we're going to see in um, 2 Thessalonians is that of end times and what's going to happen at the end of the age. And even our study this morning is going to touch upon some of that. But he begins with a very typical uh, greeting there. And let's read verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. And we'll stop right there. So the Thessalonians, they had a growing faith. They had a faith that was growing exceedingly. And this is something that each and every one of us should be very, very interested. How is my faith? Is my faith growing? And is it growing exceedingly? Because evidently, that is something that can happen. And, of course, they were kind of put in the, uh, uh, you know, the pressure cooker of tribulations, which has a way of accelerating the growth in our life like nothing else. That's not to say you have to go you know, pick a trial to live in. But God, in his wisdom and sovereignty, when he brings them in, they always serve the purpose, and we'll see this in a moment, to help us grow. Faith grew exceedingly, it says there, in verse 3. Why should we be interested in seeing our faith grow? And I've got four points for you here on this. Why should we be concerned about our faith growing? And listen, um, you could go through, the, I'm only going to give you a, f a few samplings from Hebrews chapter 11. I encourage you to go through and make an entire list on your own of the importance of faith. But we'll begin by saying that it's by faith that we please God. Um, Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it's impossible to please him, for he, comes, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is something that should just spark uh, 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 
interest and concern and say, yes, I want my faith to go because I want to please him. I want the Lord to be pleased with my life. I want him to look at my life and I want him to just say, that is a faith that brings me joy, that brings me pleasure. We know that it was for the joy that was set before Christ that he endured the cross and despised the shame. What is the joy? It's you. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It's those that he was going to redeem. And I'm sure in that as well is that of pleasing the Father. But let's, you know, to me that's probably a, a lesser point in the context because he was already pleasing to the Father before he came. There's already perfect relationship. So it's this, this, this idea that he'll redeem us and the one who loves us that much, certainly there should be the response, and I believe there is within every true follower of the Lord, the response is, I want to please him. I want him to have joy in me. And so why should we be interested in seeing, like the, uh, the Thessalonians, that our faith is growing exceedingly? Hey, because we want to please the one who saved us. Secondly, um, in Hebrews eleven seven, 7, it's, it's by faith that we escape judgment. By faith, Noah built the ark and thus escaped judgment. That's a, faith is pretty important. It pleases God, and I think that's among the highest of all the reasons we can put for why we should see our faith growing, is to please Him and worship Him. But secondly, faith allowed Noah to escape judgment. How, how does that work? God said, build an ark. It's gonna, I'm going to flood this earth, which had never happened before. And yet, on that simple word of the Lord, Noah believed it, and he got to the task of building the world's first ship to deal with a flood that had never come. And as he did this, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, but he was a man full of faith. And that faith, as you know, resulted in him and his family, those eight souls, being able to board that ark and with a a large sampling of, of the animal kingdom, and they were spared from the flood. By faith. And it's by faith that we put our, our, our trust in Jesus Christ to give us the hope of eternal life. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, thirdly, it's by faith that we inherit promises. For chapter 11, verse 8 of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham inherited promises. Do you want to experience and walk in the blessings and the promises that God has for your life? Then you must have faith. Abraham believed that God would give him a, a child, a descendant. And he inherited those promises by faith. It was by faith that Abraham went and he offered up Isaac. And it, it, there's nothing that you can do in this Christian walk that is going to be apart from faith. Faith is so key. And then lastly... We read in Hebrews eleven twenty four 24, by faith Moses turned away from all the riches of Egypt. It is by faith that we reject this world. If you, are, if, if you believe that the promises of God are true, then that is going to allow you to say no to sin and to deny your flesh. And when everybody's pushing you in a certain direction, you'll be able to say no. I'm not interested because I have faith in God that following him and believing him and walking in his commandments is the best thing I can do. It's the greatest thing that I can do. And so faith 
is important. So we can read here uh, the, the commendation that he gives them that their faith was growing exceedingly, but unless we understand the significant place of faith, maybe we would just say, well, I'm okay with where my faith is. Well, don't you want to bring more pleasure to God? Don't you want to live in that, that place of, of escaping judgment? Don't you want to inherit the promises of God? Don't you want to be able to look at the world and say, no, thank you. I am not interested in what you are selling. I, I don't care for it. Because I have something in the Lord that is far greater. So our faith, um, it's, it's what needs to be growing. And you should take the time to sit down and say, is my faith stronger? Am I bringing pleasure to God more here at the end of this year than I did at the beginning of the year? Am I, am I still in that place of walking in faith and believing the Lord, knowing that I will escape the judgment that is to come? Am, am I walking in the promises? Am I turning my back on this world and saying no to it easier than ever before? And the, the answer is, when your faith grows, you can. You know, for some, they find it so difficult to say no to anything that their flesh has that desires or anything that the world puts in front of them. It's like, I just can't say no. Well, your faith needs to grow. As a matter of fact, it's the end of 1 John that it says that it's our faith that has overcome this world. Going, tying very much in with the, the idea of Hebrews eleven twenty four that it's by faith that we turn from this world. Pay attention to your faith. Grow your faith. Strengthen your faith. How do I do that? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? By the Word of God. Make it that constant intake into your life. In the midst of these trials, we see at the end of verse 3 that they had a love for everyone, and it was abounding. We talked about this in our, our study in 1 Thessalonians. But this was a loving fellowship. And that is one thing that happens in the midst of trials and storms when you're really being pressed, is that you look and you're, it's easier to just say, I see the need, and to deny yourself and go and minister and to put yourself out to really help and to encourage one another. But we know we, don't, we shouldn't have to wait for trials to do that. Let's do it at all times. Um, obviously, trials allow us to see things more clearly in somebody else's life, what they need and how we can help. But get to know people. Get plugged into the home fellowships. Get involved in the small groups. Get to know each other, and you will see how you can do that. And so, in the midst of all of this trouble, in the midst of all of this difficulty, we see in verse 4 that their faith was growing. It didn't, the trials and the persecution does not call the, cause the true believer to wilt away. Now, there are, there are some seeds, right? that are planted in shallow earth, and they immediately spring to life, but as soon as the sun comes up, it scorches them, and because there's no depth, they immediately wither away and die. But the true believer who's planted in the, in the Lord himself, when the trials come, it is not something that's going to cause you to fade away. So your trials and your persecutions, mine, are no excuse to draw back. John 16.33 says, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So there's a promise for you. You're going to have tribulation. And those are the, should not consider it a strange thing if you find yourself in that place this morning. 
Let's take a few moments just to, to consider what should our attitudes be towards difficulty and what will difficulty produce in our life. So first of all, let's talk about the glory that we're going to have in trouble or in tribulation. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. I got it on the screen, but I realize it might be a little small, but this is one of those verses you just want to know where it is in your Bible. This is like, I need to be able to find this verse. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul gloried. This, the word glory derives from a word which means to, to brag or to boast. How do you respond in your trials and tribulations? Is it, is it you know, kind of a bitter complaint or is it a bragging and a boasting that God is at work because it's going to produce in me perseverance, the strength to make it to the end, and the character that we develop in the midst of being under that pressure, and the hope that comes as a result of it. So what should be our attitude? We should glory in these tribulations. We should rejoice that we are going through the very things that Jesus said, because we are his followers, we would have, and that we should be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. But then the other one is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. He says, count it pure joy. My brethren, count it all joy or pure joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There it is again, perseverance. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, who doesn't want that? You know, perfect and nothing lacking um, in their life. Perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Everybody wants that. How does it come? One of the ways in which God produces that in our life is through various trials. And the response of the believer is to count it all joy. Not some joy, not mostly joy. It's the, it's the idea of pure joy. It doesn't have a mixture of any other element in it. In the midst of our trials, we do this. Well, that's, you know, how can you say that? Well, hopefully you can see as we read these scriptures, I'm not the one saying that. It's Jesus himself saying, be of good cheer. It's the testimony of scripture. It's the, it's the evidence of those that had walked through trials that are telling us these very things. And so, exceeding faith, faith that's growing, faith that's enduring, so glory in those trials, rejoice in those trials, knowing what God is doing in your life. Now we move on into verse 5, um, and it says, Which is, so all of these trials and these tribulations, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. So um, we're going to move into these next, this next section that it informs the believers of what's going to happen to them and what's going to happen to those that were causing all of this trouble that they were facing. So in verse 5, he talks about the evidence of suffering. The suffering indicated that there was going to be a future judgment of God. 
They were going through these things. Their steadfastness was evidence that they were worthy of the kingdom of God. Trials revealed the true, as we just studied, nature and the character of the thing being tested. And as they went through that trial, it was tested and it became evident of the quality of people they were. And if they are the people of God, then what is God going to do to those that persecute his people? Well, it's manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. There is a righteous judgment of God that is going to come. They hadn't earned the place in the kingdom of God by their suffering, but rather their endurance shows that they had already been placed in the kingdom of God. And it became that evident sign. How do you know that you're a child of God? How do you know you're part of the kingdom of God? Well, one way is that you endure sufferings and trials. And it becomes manifest evidence that you are truly the Lord. And in this context where they're being persecuted, that righteous judgment was going to come. And it says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. And it's, again, we see that for which you also suffer. They weren't just suffering because they um, were causing trouble. They weren't, you know, stirring up trouble. They were suffering because they were part of the kingdom of God. Look at verse 6. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Righteous. I I want you, if you're one that likes to underline, look at verse 5. It says, the righteous judgment of God. In verse 6, since it is a righteous thing. An upright thing, a pure thing. It's the it's a appropriate thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Those who persecute the church of Jesus Christ, they will suffer. As we make our way through the book of Revelation, we see those martyred tribulation saints and how they are underneath the altar of the Lord awaiting um, you know, the Lord to bring judgment. And they 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 call out, they pray for that judgment to come against their persecutors. Well, it is a righteous thing for God to repay those who bring trouble. You know, and we'll get into this in just a a moment. But many question the judgment of God as as something that, well, if God is going to bring judgment, then surely he is not a good God. And because um, I believe God is good, I don't believe he judges. And this is kind of the logic that they have. But, but this, is not a, this is not from the Bible. This is not from the Bible. The Bible says that it's righteous. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, as some of the worst judgments that have ever fallen upon the earth are happening, the Lord, uh, heaven itself, cries out, True and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. When we begin to say things like, well, I don't believe that God will judge because I don't think that that is a a right thing. I don't think that a loving God would do that. Then you you have a real conflict with Scripture. So who's going to give? Is it your understanding of the way God ought to be or is it the way God said it is? And we we have questions and we're going to talk about eternal judgment here in just a moment. And people will say, I just can't see a God that would judge eternally. Well, that's the testimony of Scripture. But be careful where you tread. Are you more loving than God? Are you more gracious than God? Are you more loving? 
Are you saying that you feel deeper and you have a greater sense of mercy and grace than God himself does? Have you ever been, you can just shake your head, yes. Have you ever been in an argument or a a dispute with somebody? You think one thing, they think another thing. And there comes that critical moment in that pleasant discussion where they give you the rest of the information. You're like, oh, yeah, I, I didn't know that. Um, I apologize. Um, I, I didn't know. If I would have known, I would have never. We've all had that moment in life where we've had a wrong conclusion. <laughs> Listen, the testimony of Scripture is clear. It's a righteous thing that God would judge. Now, we may not fully understand it, but this is where a subject we've already talked about comes in. It's where faith comes in. Well, I just don't understand. Okay, you don't understand. I got that. But do you understand that God is kind and merciful and gracious, abounding in mercy? That there's no one that shows mercy or kindness and and love more than God in all the universe? and, And it's manifested in this, in that he sent his son to die on the cross and take his judgment upon his body for you. So let me ask this question. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Because if Jesus died on the cross, then you believe in the judgment of God. Jesus hung on the cross and experienced the judgment of God. Read Isaiah 53 again. He was wounded for our transgressions. It pleased the Father to bruise him. Jesus said in the garden before he was about to go and, and die on the cross, if it is possible, let this cup pass. I don't want to drink this cup of judgment. And He says, yet nevertheless, your will be done. And Jesus went to the cross. So, yes, the cross is all about judgment. So how can we say that we believe God would not judge us, but he would judge his son? I mean, you might as well throw your Bible away at this point, because none of it's going to make sense. What about all the animals that were sacrificed under the Old Testament Levitical system? That was judgment for what? For sin. What about uh, Noah and the flood that we just talked about? What is that? What about Sodom and Gomorrah? What about the the many exiles that uh, Israel went through? What about the event that Jesus talked about before he died, that Israel would be surrounded? And indeed, they were in AD 70 and destroyed by Rome. How can we say there is no judgment? Your Bible becomes a very, very complicated piece of literature if you don't believe in the judgment. Now, again, you say, well, I just don't think a loving God would do that. Well, then you got to just, you you have to come to the table and say, I don't know everything I need to know yet. But this is what I do know, is that God loved me, and he sent his son to die on the cross for me. And I believe that. And I believe that he is a loving God. You may not fully understand how God can pour out his judgment and pour it out eternally and still be loving, but you know that he's loving. Don't forsake what you do know, that God is loving and that the Bible says judgment is coming for what you don't know. And there's a lot of things we don't know, folks, but we do know those two things. And so step back, be, be, be humble and say, I don't understand it. I don't fully get it, but I trust the Lord. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation. 
those who trouble you. Look at verse 7. It says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So retribution upon those who trouble and rest for those who follow. And this is a decision that each individual must make. What are you going to do? Are you going to follow the Lord? Are you going to seek after him? Or are you going to do your own thing? And if we don't put our trust in the Lord, then we'll never know the rest that is going to come. That last song we sang, I mean, it's a beautiful song, and it, and it, it, it echoes the cry of our heart. It echoes Scripture itself that he's going to wipe away every tear. There's going to be such joy in the presence of the Lord. Here are a few verses for you. Revelation, actually, let's see, we'll start Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. A glory is coming. It is going to be so amazing. And Paul says, listen, the troubles we go through now don't even compare them. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What's that? The broken heart, the pain in your body, the emotional distress you feel, temporary. It's not that it's insignificant, it's just that it's temporary. And when you compare that temporary with the eternal, the light with the heavy glory of heaven, then, then we're able to endure. How about Revelation 14, verse 13? Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works Follow them. And that is true for all believers, as rest is coming. Or chapter 21, verse 4 of Revelation. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Hey, rest is coming. Ease is coming. Glory is coming. Glory that's unimaginable is coming. Don't give up. Endure. Persevere. Press on. You can do it. You can do it. Not you. In the strength of the Lord that he supplies you, you can do it. And it's worthy. It's worthy of waiting and patiently enduring. Jesus said it would be like this. So these that were being persecuted, he says, hey, righteous judgment is coming upon those that are troubling you. But you you, you're going to receive rest. And I'm sure that was, that was music to their ears. That was a, a, you know, a, a salve that they needed to be applied to their wounds. And listen, it's real. And I believe that if you will hear it and you will receive it and you will take it in, and all those things that we've already talked about that you're going through, not just persecution, if you will and you will receive this word, it will will lift you up right now. It will change your outlook on life right now. But here's the problem. You ever tried to give a little kid cough syrup? It's a lot of fun, isn't it? 
Stuff goes everywhere. If you're a parent, you have probably had purple or red something on you as you tried to give them medicine. They don't want it. You ever try to take a... It's interesting. Some kids, I have three children. Some of them did not mind having their, their, their tooth pulled. Hey, Dad, my tooth is loose. Pull it out. Boink. Done. Another one was petrified. And um, actually... Um, <laughs> Came up to him, and he said, my tooth is loose. I looked at it, and I said, let me see. He said, don't pull it. I said, I won't pull it. I lied. I said, I won't pull it. I went up there, and I, went, I pulled it out. He goes, did you pull my tooth? I said, no. And he goes, oh. And then I held out his tooth. He goes, you pulled it. I, I said, yeah, it didn't hurt. And, and we can get, I mean, there would be panic that would come over him. It was a traumatic time. And the Lord is saying, here, let me, let me put some medicine on that. But, but are, what are you like right now? Well, no, 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 no. I don't want medicine. I don't want the Lord's word that it's, it's a light affliction, that it's passing away, that there's glory ahead of me. I, I don't want that medicine upon my pain, upon my wound, upon my hurt this morning. I want it gone. And I want blessing. I want something to replace it. Well, you need to have faith in the Lord, if you will. You can find healing this morning in the word of the Lord. Let's kind of wrap this up. Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, in flaming fire. Now we go back to the judgment, this righteous judgment. Again, it's righteous. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the everlasting destruction. You must put your faith and trust in the gospel. Gospel is good news. The good news is that we were all sinners separated from God, and God sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins, where he poured out judgment upon his son's body so we wouldn't have to experience the judgment of God in ourselves. And for all who believe and trust in that, they will be saved. That's the gospel. If you reject the gospel, then you accept flaming fire of vengeance from God. This is it. This is what's going to happen. These, verse 9, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. There is an eternal fire of torment waiting for those who do not know God, those who persecute the people of God, those who reject the gospel. And again, there are those who say, well, I believe in judgment because scripture talks about it, but I believe that it's annihilation. In other words, somebody will die, and when they die, they either immediately go from um, any sense of consciousness or awareness, they are snuffed out, annihilated, or they will wait for a time until the second, uh, until the great white throne judgment, and then they will be, um, that judgment will end. And this is called annihilationalism. They don't believe in eternal destruction, everlasting destruction that's talked about in verse, verse 9. And, and, and yet, there is, that is not borne out through the language. I spent, you know, the, the last, you know, all day yesterday looking at this. I could not find a single, I could find commentaries that said, you know, annihilationalism belief, but none of them could go to the, to the language to prove their point. Every commentary I went to agreed the, the experts in, in the linguistics all agree that 
This is talking about something that lasts forever. But let me just read to you. I think it's very plain to see. I'm going to turn to Matthew 25, and you can read the whole chapter, but I'm going to give you two verses from this. Matthew 25, 41, and then we're going to move down to verse 46. It says, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. How, how long is everlasting? And this is what the, the, the angels are going to experience, the fallen angels and the devil. And he says, those are going to go, through, go into this. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. It's this eternal, where you read eternal and everlasting, it's the same. So there's a, there's a comparison that's made. The context is so clear in Matthew 25, 46. There is eternal life. Do you believe in eternal life? Of course you believe in eternal life. It's going to last forever. How long is eternal life going to last? It's going to last forever. The same exact Greek word is used to describe everlasting or eternal punishment. It's the same word. You can't say, I believe in eternal life, but now the word in the same sentence means something different because you emotionally have a problem with it. Your emotions, your ability to work this through that God would eternally punish people does not allow you to dismiss what the clear statement of Scripture is. This is a hard and bitter thing. How hard and bitter is it? It is so hard and it is so bitter that God sent his only son to die upon the cross so we wouldn't have to. It is so hard, it is so bitter that the Lord has been waiting for 2,000 years, much to our disappointment. Well, we're not disappointed that he waited 1,900 years or so. We're just disappointed that he's waited any time after I got saved. But it's a long suffering of God, not willing that any should perish. But people will perish. People will experience this. You know, some will say, well, I, I just don't believe it. Well, then how about the parable that Jesus gave of the rich man and Lazarus? Where, where Lazarus was in the place of comfort in Abraham's bosom, but, but the rich man who was unkind to Lazarus in life was in a place of torment, alive and conscious, aware, asking that Lazarus could come and at least dip his finger in water and put it upon his tongue. And some will say, well, we believe that there's a judgment in this time, but eternal will not last. So in other words, it could last a thousand years or 5,000 years or 6,000 years. <laughs> and my thinking, you, if you have a problem with judgment, then you've got, I mean, 6,000 years is a long time to be tormented. But simply because you take out eternal, it suddenly becomes okay. That, again, that doesn't make sense to me. Is this a tough teaching? It absolutely is. It is hard. But that's how we make sense of the gospel. If, if man just goes out of existence and has no conscience after dying, then why would the Lord send his son to take on the worst possible punishment of the crucifixion and being separated from him? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, the contrast. Perish and everlasting life. And so this is 
the, what we read throughout Scripture. We believe in eternal life, but Scripture also teaches about eternal death. Verse 10, it says, When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. And so there we have it. We will be in the presence of the Lord one day. And for those who have faith and trust in the Lord, we will have rest. And for those who reject the gospel, the Lord will bring eternal judgment upon them. But that's not what he wants. That's not what he desires. He is patiently waiting for you, your loved ones, this town we live in, this world that we are a part of, to come to faith. Because he doesn't want them to go through this kind of judgment. But it is real. And in the end, I am confident of this very thing. Although there may be questions of why eternal or why this or why that, I am confident of this one thing. When we are on the other side of glory and we are standing in the presence of the Lord, we will say, like heaven, true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. Because we will fully understand and fully see. We will see it as he sees it. And so, if you are here and you don't know the Lord, you need to know him that you might have eternal life. You need to share the gospel with your family that they might have eternal life. And you, like Paul, must seek to persuade them to trust in Jesus that they might escape this. There is no escaping. The Lord knows us all. The Lord is able to deal with us all, and all will stand before the Lord, either to be welcomed into heaven or to be um, sent from his presence. And, and that's what we, we read there, is that part of what's going to happen is not only is there going to be this eternal judgment, but in verse 9 it says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That's going to be a significant part of the, of, of the torment, is that you're not in the presence of the Lord, which you were created to know and to experience. And you can begin that now, and you can have it for all of eternity.